The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 29th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, ah, Cecil, killed by that foulest of creatures, an ugly American with a mix of, I'm going to say, impotence and murder lust. Cecil was, of course, Zimbabwe's iconic lion shot by an American dentist. But, you know, we have a really weird relationship with fearsome animals. Well, the dentist had a really weird relationship with fearsome animals, but it was straightforwardly weird. He gets off on killing lions. That is odd. But, you know, a hundred years ago, it wasn't odd. Theodore Roosevelt was valorized for such acts. And then you hear stats like in 1975, there were a quarter million lions in Africa, and now it's down to 30,000. And that feels sad because lions are beautiful and lions are cool and Simba and Mustafa and cowardly. But I would say that a good percentage of those quarter million lions really was a, a them or us sort of situation. I'm going to guess lions will kill you. You know that, right? Not if you're a cowardly dentist from Minnesota. That guy was in absolutely no danger. But there are a lot of dead lions, or through history, if you look at all the dead lions, a lot of them were probably going to eat a guy first. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I do feel bad for Cecil the Lion. I really do. And of course, the saddest part of all is the news that was quoted on the BBC Johnny Rodriguez chairman for the Zimbabwe Conservation Task Force. What normally happens is that when uh, a new male comes into the pride and takes over, he kills all the cubs so he can bring uh, get the females to come on, on, on the eat and produce his own kids. And there have been reports that the fate, the horrible deadly fate has already befallen Cecil's three cubs killed by the next dominant male in the hierarchy, Jericho the lion. I do see there is a move-on petition to save the cubs. Look, if Senator Tom Cotton is not going to read a moveon.org petition, I doubt that Jericho the lion will be swayed by one. Maybe Jericho is more of a uh, change.org type of lion. Maybe he still holds it against moveon.org that they turned against General Petraeus with the Petraeus or Betrayus full page ad in the Times. That was a bridge too far, said Jericho, the now dominant lion. If it seems like I'm being glib, Let me clearly state, Cecil, sad news, dentist, bad guys, lions, still may want to eat you. I'm just saying. On the show today, I spiel about body cams and dashboard cams and not giving up hope about their usefulness. And we talked to a novelist who wrote a novel about a great imposter. But first, a discussion of a great infester, bed bugs, everything you probably didn't want to know. Infested, how the bed bug infiltrated our bedrooms and dun 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 took over the world is the new book by Brooke Burrell. Hello, Brooke. Hi. I don't normally do this, but I want to start with the very last thing. I think the very last thing in the book, which is Appendix 4. Tell us what Appendix 4 is. Oh, um, Appendix 4 is a series of three limericks that I wrote about bad bugs. Yeah. Other appendices <laughs> include songs whose lyrics include bed bugs, like Echo and the Bunny Men and the Rolling Stones, and your guide to bed bugs because people right. say, well, what should I do? And like, oh, read Appendix 1. So go ahead, pick any of the three. Give me a little A-A-B-B-A rhyme scheme. And- <laughs> 
this is probably the most popular one. This is the first one I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, the bedbug traumatically inseminates, much to the dismay of his many mates. Not one for romance. He stabs with his lance. No surprise, he's not asked out on many dates. Yes, he's not asked out on many dates, but he thrusts his dates upon the female <laughs> through a process known as traumatic insemination. How traumatic is it? Pretty traumatic. Uh, he basically, he has this penis that is sort of like a needle, and he uh, climbs on her back and reaches around to her abdomen and stabs her in the abdomen and ejaculates into her body cavity. How are bedbugs then proliferating? This seems the sort of thing that females would not go in for. Well, actually, with bedbugs, the female has evolved over time this uh, interesting organ called the spermalege. Mm-hmm. And it's a sac, basically a sac or a collection of immune cells that helps heal the wound and helps protect her from pathogens that might be on his stabby penis. Uh, and probably it's not entirely known what happened here, but it might be the the bed bug eventually evolved this tactic, the male bed bug, because it helps. Like he was able to get sperm closer to the ovaries faster than his competitors, and that might be what's happening, but it's not entirely known. All right. So why do you become obsessed with the bed bugs? As many people in New York and beyond become obsessed with bed bugs, I've had them before. I had them the first time in 2004. Uh, in an apartment in Hell's Kitchen, and they weren't in the news a lot then, and I didn't really know what was happening. Uh, it took a while to figure out. I, I'm very allergic, so I was getting these really bad bites. I ended up in the emergency room, which is not typical for bed bug bites. I was at the doctor on and off. I had to go on antibiotics because I had got an infected bite, which is pretty gross, and I had to go on steroids at one point because the swelling was so bad. So anyway, we finally That was the one up. excuse A-Rod <laughs> didn't try. Bed bugs. <laughs> Can't blame me. It was bed bugs. <laughs> Um, and it, yeah, so we finally figured out what it was, and I was really shocked to learn that that was an actual species of insects. I had always heard bed bugs and thought it was a catch-all term right. for anything that can end up in your bed, like because, a because it does Right, because it does harken back to old nursery rhymes yeah. and don't let the bed bugs bite. And yes, it's very much like the boogeyman or the... Uh, Ants in your pants, not really ants. <laughs> right, right, right. So that I mean, that experience was pretty uh, intriguing and traumatic in a lot of ways. And then I got them again in 2009, twice in the same summer. And at that point, I was working as a science writer, and I also they were in the news a lot more then. Yeah. I was amazed by a lot of things. One, that the experience in 2004 wasn't this one-off thing, um, that other people were experiencing this pretty broadly in New York and also beyond around the world. And then also just the fact that most people like me who had grown up after World War II similarly didn't know what this was. So I I was just really intrigued by, like, why is this back? Why was there a resurgence? So it's a combination of things. First, you have to kind of go back to that time. When I mentioned World War II, that was actually a very specific time. Uh, DDT, the insecticidal properties of DDT, the insecticide were discovered at the beginning of the war, basically. And it was used in the war to combat mosquitoes that carry malaria and lice that carry typhus. And after the war, it was commercialized. And it happened to be very, very effective against bed bugs. And that's there were probably some other factors, but that's one major one in the U.S. anyway and uh, some other places where we were able to knock their numbers down considerably to the point that they were rare. Um, why did they surge back? It's a combination of – so even though we had knocked their numbers down, there were pockets of DDT-resistant bedbugs happening because evolution. You bombard you know, a species. It's very romantic. Yeah. It's like the French underground. <laughs> <laughs> they had their yeah, own the newsletter and everything. <laughs> yes. It totally did. So they, we they, meet at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In the bed. Um, they, so they, there were still these pockets around that were resistant to DDT. 
Uh, and then around the 80s and 90s, it got a lot cheaper and easier to fly. Um, deregulation of the airlines in the U.S. in the 80s. Well, it was a little bit earlier than that, but it took effect in the 80s. And then similar international treaties in the 90s between different countries. It just got a lot cheaper and easier to fly. So wherever these bedbugs, these resistant bedbugs were hanging out, they were able to spill beyond those con- confines much more easily when people are traveling. So we could blame another country for them. Which country? Well, Which well, country? Well, 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 Tell me it's the French. Hang on. No, no, no. Come on. No, no, no. We don't know that yet. We don't know where they came from yet. There are some theories out there. Working but... theory is the French, but okay. <laughs> the working theory is not the French, by right, the way. Okay. Um, so they're, they're, they're able to spill out beyond these confines wherever they were still, you know, pretty common. We also have more people on the planet than ever before. So there's literally more food. More of us are living in cities. Bedbugs can end up anywhere, but it's especially easy for them to spread in cities. And then the resistance thing also came back to bite us. I didn't mean a pun there, but I guess we'll go with it. Because the so the, we can't use DDT anymore in our homes, but the main class of insecticides that we can use are called pyrethroids, and they basically work the same way in the bedbugs uh, nervous system as DDT. So the bedbugs and all the offspring that were DDT resistant had cross resistance to these pyrethroids. And they've also developed some other modes of resistance against those insecticides. So a combination of all these things and, and boom, here they are. Yep. Okay. Let's talk prevention and then let's talk eradication. What steps can we take never to get them in the first place? (laughs) I think that in general, like if you're traveling a lot, uh, when I go to a hotel, I never put my suitcase on the bed. For example, I don't put my clothes on the bed. Uh, I usually search the bed. I mean, this doesn't always... I have gotten bed bugs in a hotel before, even after searching the bed. So, you know, you could spend hours visually trying to inspect a room and it might be a little bit of a waste of time because you still might not be able to see them. But I usually pull up the sheets around the edges of the mattress and I look to make sure there's not a horrible infestation, at least. Have you ever caught one? So in that particular case, no, I haven't. And in the one case where I did end up getting, getting bed bugs in the hotel room, they were hiding in the bed skirt and that's where they were found later. Would a better hotel or at least a cleaner hotel that regularly cleans the sheets be less likely to have them? Definitely if you are, I mean, bed bugs have a little bit of an unfair association with people who are messy or dirty, but if you do regularly change the sheets and vacuum and wash your bedding and clothes and on high temperatures because high heat kills them, that's a good way to try and prevent them from taking hold. Infested, How the Bed Bug Infiltrated Our Bedrooms and Took Over the World is a new book by Brooke Burrell. And her message, if I can encapsulate it in one sentence, is that it's mostly because of the French. Thank you, <laughs> Brooke. It's not because of the French. <laughs> and now I bring you this suggestion that the future of podcasting just might be a podcast about the future. Oh, hello. You've stumbled across something pretty exciting here. If things look a little shinier or high-tech, that's because we're now in Futuropolis. Or rather, you're listening to Futuropolis, a new podcast from Popular Science on Panoply. Are your daydreams consumed by what food we might eat in a space colony or whether our bodies will someday be replaced with cyborg parts? Us too. We decided to stop dreaming and start asking some pretty smart scientists what life will be like in the future. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell, and we'll be your trusty guides to the world of tomorrow. Subscribe to Futuropolis to get every episode as soon as it comes out. Or search for Futuropolis on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. 
Giovanni Bernini has a gift. It's also kind of a curse until he realized it was a gift. He could do impressions. Not just impressions. He becomes people. He is the title character in Jacob Rubin's novel, The Poser. Jacob Rubin is here. Hello, Jacob. Hello. Thanks for having me. So this guy, Giovanni Bernini, we get to know him as we read the book. And he's a cipher at first, but then he fleshes out into a certain type of person. Now, my question for you is, did you discover things about him as you went along? Did you always know where you'd be going in figuring out who Bernini was as opposed to figuring out what his skill was? I definitely discovered who he was as I wrote the book. I had the premise first or the image of this character who could imitate anyone he met. It's a great premise. Thank you. But then... I think what became the riddle, though I didn't know it was, as I tried to answer it over time, was whom he'd choose to imitate and why, even if he didn't know why, which kinds of characters he'd be sort of magnetically drawn to. And in those selections, sort of revealing uh, who he is, you know, in quotes, whatever that means. So, Yeah, it's a great conceit. You could play around with it and you could do a lot of things literarily. And I want to get to that. But you could also make statements. Now, we should uh, stipulate that he's not just good at impressions. He's almost a superhero. He becomes anyone, not just a celebrity. And it takes him a minute or two to find a thread, as he calls it, and then really become the person to the extent that everyone in an audience would recognize and an audience would be delighted and they based a show on him. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of preternatural, freakish, and beyond, like SNL impressionists will spend weeks, if not months, if not years, preparing an impression, whereas Giovanni can do it instantly. Yeah. And totally convincingly. And not exaggeratedly, because we were talking beforehand, the greatest impressions, the one we find funniest, aren't always the ones that are most accurate. They're sometimes the ones that are most exaggerated for comic effect. Yes. But that's not Giovanni's game. Right. He's doing an accurate impression. Right. Right. So why do you think we find accurate impressions funny? Why do we laugh at them? The audience laughs at them, and that seems like a reasonable reaction. What's funny about that? Yeah. I I mean, this is uh, something I've clearly thought, thought a lot about, and pathetically have yet to come up with any truly persuasive answers for myself. I mean, I think in his life, in Giovanni's, he's at first a pariah and people hate him for doing these impressions and he has no control over when he does them as a child. And then with the help of this bluff and sort of flamboyant talent manager, he's taken to the city and starts performing on a stage and he discovers that when this impulse is recontextualized as a a stage show, it's celebrated and people love it. I think like a lot of things that are uncanny or creepy in real life, if sort of put in the context of a stage or a performance, are really compelling and people will pay and, and pay again to see it. The setting was interesting. It's clearly the United States. World War II has been fought. Fictitious towns. I'm going to say it's maybe the early 50s, but there's a lot of stuff that's vague in there. Why? Yeah, that's... um. This was sort of a source of constant embarrassment for me as I was working on the book because obviously setting is probably the first thing you're supposed to know uh, about what you're writing. And I was having this case of paralyzing authorial indecision about where to set this. And then I sort of decided, well, there's some reason I want to set this in this shadowy sort of bizarro America. And then I think, I mean, this may be sort of a pretentious retroactive alibi but i realized i think in the same way that he's struggling to become real the character giovanni i think it felt right to me that the landscape would be too and it might be you know that it's 
maybe feel staged, a little uh, familiar, but alien. And so I wanted to have notes of places you might recognize, like certainly the city where he goes is modeled in some part on New York. Yeah, and, there's a big theater scene. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then there's sort of a... And the seaside place where he comes from is... Is sort of a mashup, I guess, of sort of like the Jersey Shore, but also with a mix of maybe like Maine or something yeah. like that. Okay. Now, I don't have my copy of your book with me. And if you did, it would be the most annotated novel I've read in years because I just started underlining every analogy. And there is an anal- there are three analogies on every page, and there's a killer analogy on every page I just randomly opened to. These trips felt, if anything, like missions akin to our jaunts to the movie theater, a sanctuary of my childhood. There, all the dull bits of life had been excised, the world distilled to happening, a dream in which even homely acts, a body tossing in bed, say, rivaled a general's howl for sheer immortality. There, I could hike knees to chest and mirror it all. I would sometimes even gallop through the aisle to hail a cab like a hair-flying prosecutor on screen. Analogy after analogy after analogy. It's great writing. It's also as it dawned on me probably later than it should have, it's an imitation. What is an analogy except one thing imitating another thing? That, yeah, that's a great point. And that's actually in that very section you're reading from, I had included a paragraph because he loves going to the movies with his mother because it's sort of a concordance of gesture for him. He can go and, and or, or an encyclopedia, he can see them all and then connect them. And, and I had actually labored for more hours than I'd care to say in a whole paragraph where he's linking, he's realizing that one gesture that, for instance, I think in there I had that the gesture that a preacher makes, you know, like an evangelical preacher is similar to the gesture that someone who has a gun to his head makes in a movie, you know, um, that same sort of posture of surrender of a kind, you know. And I was really proud of this paragraph, and then I realized it was too on the nose because it sort of made explicit what was otherwise this underlying stylistic trend of his to link things. I can't take credit for that being a conscious choice, but I only later, similar to the sort of selection of the landscape, realized that it worked on that level. I sometimes think that, I sometimes don't believe an author's description. It just strikes me as false, not because the words are clunky. I just don't sometimes think couches can be that different. Or I don't think, sometimes I'll say it's like a combination of this and that, and I'll say there is no combination of this and that. And I swear to God, I remember just off the top of my head, I was a young producer on a show and one of the first guys from Law and Order, he was like Michael Moriarty. He was in it for one season and he wrote the worst book I've ever read and we interviewed him on the show. And I'll never forget a phrase in that book. It was, she had the studied Alon of an extremely aggressive gazelle. And that seems like a combination of words that there's no such look as that. <laughs> like even if your yeah, guy, well. Giovanni, is, a, is an exquisite perceptor there's no such thing as having that form of a lawn right that that graduate degree in a lawn that that gazelle would have to have even other gazelles like what are you talking about it's just a gazelle well i think also the studied the adjective studied seems to clash with extremely aggressive yeah studied a lawn would i would i would picture sort of an understated yeah a lawn yeah i wanted to get him in the interview to admit that he used the technique of mad libs to construct (laughs) most of his book The Poser by Jacob Rubin, a new novel worth your time. Thanks very much, Jacob. Thanks so much for having me.
And now the spiel overkill. Today, a University of Cincinnati police officer was indicted for the murder of an unarmed black man. The officer, Ray Tensing, pulled over Samuel DeBose for, it would seem, good reason. And during the officer's questioning of Mr. DeBose, he was handed a bottle of gin that was on the front seat of his car. For the first minute and 53 seconds of the encounter, the officer seemed poised, in control, and doing his job correctly. Hey, how's it going, man? Good, Officer Tenzing, you see police. Do you ever like this on you? Yeah, what happened? What okay. Is this your call? And then DeBose seems to turn on the ignition, Tensing yells, the body cam starts to shake, and DeBose is shot in the head. The car takes off. Tensing, wearing a body cam, that's how we know all this, gives chase and the car crashes. Tensing reported that he was dragged by the car, but the body cam rebuts that claim. And now Tensing is charged with one count of first-degree murder by a Hamilton County, Ohio prosecutor. To me, the incident shows the absurdity of the claims of one week ago that body cams don't work. In The Guardian, Stephen Thrasher wrote an op-ed titled, Cameras aren't stopping police misconduct, Exhibit A, Sandra Bland. Well, Exhibit B, Ray Tensing. And Exhibit whatever comes before A, the McKinney, Texas ridiculous over-policing at a teenage pool party that resulted in an officer leaving the force. No one there was seriously injured, but it was a just outcome. And there was no body cam, but there was cell phone video that sealed the fate of the officer, or I should say former officer's fate. Body cams aren't the answer if the question is, what is the one thing we need to do to solve all of the problems of over-policing the black community? But then again, and I have a feeling many of you will disagree with this assessment, but I don't think the case of Sandra Bland was the right illustration of the problem of over-policing the black community. Some of it was, but not the conclusion. Here's what I mean. Was Sandra Bland pulled over for driving while black? I can't prove that she was, but it is true that she failed to signal. Now, everything that came afterward was the twisted fruit of the poisonous tree, but failure to signal is an offense. If I fail to signal, I expect to be pulled over. And you know what? If you fail to signal near a cop, I hope you get pulled over too. Now, I, of course, hope that the cop I get who comes up to me, who comes up to you, comes up to anyone, does not act like Brian Insinia, and that is why he is rightly under criminal investigation. But there were, to my mind, five wrongs in the Sandra Bland case. The first wrong was Officer Insinia's belligerence. He could have de-escalated. In fact, he escalated. The second wrong was Sandra Bland's attitude. She was belligerent also. The third wrong was how the bail process worked or totally failed three days in jail for a failure to raise $500 to pay a bail bondsman. The fourth wrong was the jail suicide prevention procedure. But the fifth wrong, it must be said, was Sandra Bland's decision to commit suicide. Maybe decision's the wrong word. Maybe it's an insensitive word. Whatever you wish to call it, her despair, her mental illness, her hopelessness, but it was something akin to her decision. She shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have done that to herself or her family or even to her captors to let them win in that way. And this is why I think it's fairly disgusting that Rolling Stone headlined an overall pretty reasonably argued Matt Taibbi column headlined it, Sandra Bland was murdered. That is so inaccurate. I wonder how it helps the overall cause of ending police brutality and over-policing. It's so inaccurate you hope reasonable people won't dismiss the entire issue. Hopefully, they'll just look at it 
maybe look at the UVA rape story and dismiss Rolling Stone's editorial judgment. Again, Taibbi wrote a reasonable column. I also think Jamel Bowie in Slate wrote a really good column where he argued that police bear moral responsibility for Bland's death. I will consider that argument. I'm glad that argument was put out there. I like less the stark headline, Blame the Police. The subhead's a little better. Sandra Bland's arrest and death are a national scandal. The police are responsible. Yeah, I would say they're certainly responsible for her arrest. And they bear some responsibility for her death. I especially thought, though, that Roxanne Gay's op-ed piece in the New York Times was off base. She is a great writer. Her cries really are from the heart. But I disagree when she writes, quote, One of the greatest lies perpetrated on our culture today is the notion that dash cameras on police cruisers and body cameras on police officers are tools of justice. Video evidence, no matter the source, can document injustice, but rarely does this incontrovertible evidence keep black people safe or prevent future injustices. I say that dashboard cams, body cams, are like any act of witness. They won't prevent the crime at hand. Mostly they won't. Some cops may be shamed out of doing that or knowing that they'll watch, they stop. So they won't prevent that one. But they will do a lot to shock us and to change our overall consciousness. All the video will make all of America see that what goes on all too often in the names of protecting the citizenry is too far. And today in Hamilton County, Ohio, we saw a big first step in the power of shocking video to inch us along towards justice. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, our producer, tried to turn an infestation into an infun station. Yeah, she moved out of that apartment. Managing producer Joel Meyer has long wanted to attack those heartless Minnesota dentists. Wait, what's this thing about a lime? And executive producer Andy Bowers does a great impression of William Shatner in Incubus, but it can only be understood in the original Esperanto. Hey, do you want the gist daily in your inbox in your email inbox i know i do to sign up for this where not only will it tell you when the gist is ready to go but you can play this thing right from this email go to slate.com slash gist email the gist i i really only do one good impression you want to hear it all right it's patriots owner robert Kraft. here we go once again i want to apologize to the fans of the new england patriots and tom brady I was wrong to put my faith in the league. I nailed it, right? Thanks for listening.